Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And today I'm broadcasting from the ninth floor of the wonderful Intercontinental Hotel in Kowloon in China, looking across Victoria Harbour. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, It's one of the most spectacular views on the planet. Um, I'm up here with um, William Nebrega. A couple of weeks ago I told you his extraordinary story from being um, living in a one-room apartment with no windows in in Hong Kong to uh, having a company four months later that's worth that's valued at about a hundred and something million dollars. He's uh, um, he's, an, he, he's an extraordinary entrepreneur, and uh, we're up here. We're doing a bit of business, and he's uh, just completed a very substantial interview for Forbes, which he's really excited about. Now, this program, it's all about helping entrepreneurs and everybody in business to become more productive, more successful. And we've been bringing you this information and fantastic interviews now for about four years so that we can help you maximize your own success. So we usually start off the program with a bit of news, so here we go. Google just paid $25 million for the exclusive rights to the dot app web domain like you know like dot com well google now owns dot app and uh, they decided to apply for these um, top level domains a couple of years and uh, they applied for dozens at the time including dot docs dot android dot free dot fyi and of course dot app which they've now got for $25 million. They've got exclusive rights, of course. So ICANN, which is the uh, organisation that controls the world's domain names, has been gradually auctioning off the different domains. And uh, .tech spent $6.7 million on the .tech domain last year. I reckon that's a great one, .tech. Um, Amazon bought buy dot buy for five million, and uh, so comparatively, Google's twenty-five million dollar investment in dot app looks pretty steep. But I'm sure that they've thought it through. But uh, the purchase should certainly give the company a creative way to promote apps as more uh, search shifts to mobile, and. Earlier Thursday, the company announced it was going to start testing out search ads in the Google Play Store. <clears throat> so it's all happening at Google. We'll see. I just uh, I was up in San Francisco over the weekend, and uh, the plans for their campus are just unbelievable. So they've obviously got a few dollars in the bank and looking to spend it. Apple. Now, Apple's placing huge faith in the Apple Watch and uh, it seems to be convinced that it's overcome all the negative comments about its style 
and Apple's placed a 12-page advertisement showing the Apple Watch and its various styles in the March issue of Vogue. Now, the ads don't show anything really that we haven't seen before, but it does say a hell of a lot about how um, Apple's positioning the watch. And uh, they've been saying that it's designed as a watch first and a gadget second. And uh, this giant spread in Vogue shows that um, they're serious about being a fashion leader. But the major focus of the ad is um, the 18-carat rose gold case, which is shown twice, a double-page spread um, with a modern buckle and separately with the uh, white sports band. I've got to admit, and I've been a great critic of the Apple Watch saying it's ugly, but I must admit it looks pretty cool in the, uh, in the Vogue issue. So... They're really working on it. Of course, this isn't the first time that we've seen a tech company try to promote its wearable products in the fashion world. Uh, we might remember that uh, Google Glass had a major 12-page spread, and uh, we all know how that turned out. Google Glass is no more. The Apple Watch is launching next month, and the company's holding a meeting event Uh, Actually, I think at the end of this week, maybe next Monday. No, it's this week. Um, The least expensive version of the watch is at $350, and Apple hasn't really announced how much the um, rose gold watch is going to cost, but it's rumoured to be about $5,000. I also want to talk to you today about the five common financial mistakes that entrepreneurs have got to avoid. You know, one of the things about entrepreneurs, they're usually great at inventing what they invent, but they're usually not very good at managing money or not, not necessarily managing money, but making their money last. And a hell of a lot of companies go broke because they run out of money. So when, you, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're busting your ass every day just to stay afloat. You know, you've got to build your product or your service. You've got to grow your company and achieve your goals. And unless you're a financial whiz kid, it's not always easy to work out your financial plan and pin down precise numbers because, you know, you're guessing. You really don't know what they are. I'm going through this exercise at the moment with a company <coughs> that's um, trying to forecast before even being on the market what the um, revenue and expenditure is going to be, and it is bloody difficult. And... Uh, even if you're a financial whiz, creating a financial plan and managing your finances can be challenging, particularly when you're trying to juggle a dozen other balls at the same time and you've got truckloads of stress. But unfortunately, it's really essential that you understand the importance of accurate financials, both for your own stability and your ability to plan, and more importantly, convince and assure investors that you really know what the hell you're talking about. So as an entrepreneur, there's a minefield of potential financial mistakes you can make. So let's have a look at a couple of them. The first financial mistake is usually miscalculating your cash burn. Now, your cash burns the amount of capital you go through every month just to keep the business open. And I'm sure you've heard the expression that starting a business takes twice as long as you expect and costs three times as much. I think you'd be really surprised at just how true that expression is. 
And if you don't have a good understanding of your burn rate, you know, you've got a seriously good chance, unless you've got unlimited money, of um, running out of money before you meet your milestones, even early ones. And uh, research shows that approximately one-third of entrepreneurs underestimate their monthly expenses. They get, you, know, you get optimistic and you think, oh, you know, da 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 and you forget a lot of things. And often I've come across investors who will look at your um, uh, projected expenditure and say, um, where's your allowance for electricity? You know, it's only 100 bucks a month or whatever the hell it is. Um, where's your allowance for electricity? You say, well, oh, gee, I forgot it. And their immediate reaction is, well, what the hell else have we forgotten? You've probably forgotten some big stuff in there too. So it can kill you. So and initial um, financial assumptions are usually very wrong. So you need to um, keep track of all your expenses and keep reviewing your, um, your budgets on a constant basis. So don't forget to, to um, account for both fixed and variable costs and uh, try and make projections that accurately reflect the real state of your business, not, not an optimistic view, a realistic view. The second financial mistake that entrepreneurs make is to not completely understand the marketplace into which they're going. And if you don't understand your market, you'll probably be guilty of not pricing your products correctly. One of the most difficult bloody things is pricing your product. And I don't know why people don't get that. People say, oh, it's pretty easy. It cost me a dollar to make, so I'll sell it for a dollar fifty and I'll make 50 cents profit. <laughs> doesn't work that way. So, um, yeah, so consider your market position and the value of your offering. Start with price and probably work backwards. Um, but um, you need to come back constantly to the marketplace. Who's your competition? What are their prices? You know, can you go in more expensive than them and, and still keep business? What trends are there that can, you know, really affect your sales? So you really need to carefully um, calculate your margins, your prices. The third financial mistake that entrepreneurs make sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it's hiring and, hiring and expanding too quickly. One of the greatest expenses that you're going to have in a business is your people. Now, to keep your costs low, you need to consider ways to save money on staffing. A big mistake that many startups make is hiring too quickly, having too many employees too early sitting around trying to fill in time. That's a huge drain on your funds. In addition to the salary costs, there are additional physical costs. If you've got more people, you need more offices. You need more phones, you need more equipment, you need more computers. So what will happen to these people if um, the company doesn't grow and you need to lay them off? And don't forget the reputation cost as well. So, and the other thing, of course, is how's it going to look to your investors if all of a sudden you're laying off staff? So hire slowly as you go and as you need people. The fourth mistake I think that we've all been guilty of at one time or another is to make bad hires. It's very easy to make bad hires. Um, you know, somebody sends you a, um, a resume, you read it through, you think, wow, that bloke's pretty good or that girl's pretty good. You have them come in, they talk sense, they look good, 
you hire them, you haven't checked them out properly, and all of a sudden you've got a bloody disaster on your hands. So, you know, always remember that 90% of CVs have more imagination in them than a great television show. You know, people make them up and uh, then get people to back them, back them up. So always be careful of your of the wrong hires. Um, and don't hire experience just for the sake of experience. You know, just a lot of people have got, might have a lot of experience, they've got a lot of bad habits as well. And um, that can bite you in the ass. So be very careful with your hires. The fifth mistake that entrepreneurs make is doing your own financing, the finances. You need to get somebody that's an expert to um, manage your finances on a strategic level. And if you don't yet have a lot of financial activity, you may not need a CFO, but at the very least, you still need an accountant or somebody that can give you financial support with your day-to-day accounting and your bookkeeping. You know, truly, it'll cost you a hell of a lot more in the long run to do your own finances than hiring a professional from the get-go. Now, there's no need to bring in a full-time accountant and a CFO on staff. If your company is still small, it makes more sense to outsource these functions. You know, get support on an as-needed basis. Um, So you're simultaneously reducing your cost structure. Focus on what you're great at. You know, if you're an inventor, focus to what you're great at. And um, what made you an entrepreneur in the first place? That's what's really important. So, what's your money? As your grandmother probably used to say, what's your pennies? And the um, dollars take care of themselves. It's absolutely true. And so planning, estimating your real costs, being realistic with projections of your sales. It's all very difficult to do, but you really have to do it. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show from Kowloon in China on Voice America Business. I'm looking out across Victoria Harbour. It is spectacular. Just a little cloudy, although I'm not sure whether it's cloud or smog. Hard to tell in China, but um, it's a lovely view across there. And we're here to help entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you've got a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will definitely answer you either on air or email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter. We have a March newsletter going out in probably a week or so. It goes out to 16,000 executives in about 60 countries. So make sure that you get onto my website, bobpritchard.com and uh, put yourself down on the list. Now, I'll be back after this break with my guest, a fellow metal member, a great guy, a really great guy, Josh Jekyll. He is a fabulous community activist, has been for a long time, a very successful filmmaker. His films get shown at the White House, and he's an expert on millennials. This is Bob Pritchard, live from Kowloon in China, and I'll be back with Josh in just a moment. Do you- 
want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary and very successful people. And people that are making a difference. You know, it's all right to go out there and be successful, but it's another thing to go out, be successful, and improve the world at the same time. And uh, that's why I talk so often about, in my view, the most successful entrepreneurs are those that give back to the community. It's easy to take stuff out. It's a bit like the world, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's easy to dig stuff out of the world, but um, we have to give something back. So I love to talk to people that are, successful and doing something and giving things back because there's so much that they can teach us so what we try to do in these discussions is find out what makes them tick you know what do they do that the rest of us could do to make ourselves a bit more successful and uh, put a bit more back in into the planet now josh dekel's a guy that i've seen speak on a number of occasions at metal that I talk about frequently. I've seen all these movies. And this is a guy who really cares about the planet. And uh, as you can probably, as you probably gathered from the fact that I've seen his movies, he's a, a film producer, <laughs> director, who um, specialises in connecting with the millennials, the 15 to 35-year-olds. He grew up in Louisiana, next to waterways polluted by petroleum refineries. In 1997, he captured national attention, you may remember this, by driving the veggie van. He was much younger then. He looked, he looked like a real bona fide hippie. And uh, he drove the veggie van, which was a van powered by used oil that was used for French fries. And he drove that right across the United States. In 1998, he published his first book, started touring around the colleges, and uh, that culminated in 2008 with the release of his first feature film, Fuel, which was a great film. Fuel won the Sundance Audience Award for Best Documentary, was released theatrically, it was screened at the White House for the Energy and Environment staff, in the Obama administration, of course, and was shortlisted for an Oscar. Not a bad effort for first film. Then Josh then directed the Khan 
film festival movie The Big Fix in 2011. If you haven't seen this, this is a great movie. It's all about the... Um, I might get this wrong because I haven't seen it for a couple of years since um, Josh actually gave us all a copy. But... Um, it's about the cause of the BP spill in the Gulf and the real devastation it caused, not the bullshit that we got sold in the by general media. You know, the the, the mass media um, has made it all look like all's well. It's all turned out butte, everything down there's healthy. Well, it ain't, and uh, the um, the big fix exposes all that, and it is really brilliant. So next time you get a chance to see it, do so. Now, his latest theatrical documentary, Pump, exposes a conspiracy to block fuel choice at the pump. Now, I don't know about you, but if you you drive down the street and you see six gas stations, the difference in price between all six of them is about two cents a gallon, and that to me suggests that there's something dramatically wrong. And, uh, you know, in LA there was a... um, a refinery blow up about a week or so ago and all of a sudden fuel goes up 15, 20 cents and uh, it's, it's all rigged is what I'm trying to tell you um, Josh is currently finishing production on Good Fortune the official biography of John Paul DeJuria um, he's the co-founder of Patron Tequila and of course Paul Mitchell Systems which had a, another great environmentalist and I used to go up to Paul Mitchell up in um, I guess it's probably Canoga Park or thereabouts uh, where he had a um, a fantastic rainforest place. Now Josh has just founded the Big Picture Ranch with his wife and business partner Rebecca Harold Tickell and they're located in Ojai which is a lovely resort town north of LA and uh, it serves as California's number one organic ranch film studio. It's got state-of-the-art film production facilities. It's got two cinemas. It produces over 10,000 pounds of organic avocados, as well as organic bee and honey production and and citrus, as well as, I guess, going to produce the next batch of Josh's movies. Uh, Josh also works um, internationally with companies and organisations to strengthen the bond between generations in the workplace and the marketplace. That's a pretty full plate. That's why I haven't seen him at Metal lately. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Bob, thanks so much for having me. How are you? You must be pretty much flat out, now that you're a farmer. (laughs) Exactly. A little busy these days, but life is good. That's good. Um, The workplace environment, it's changing rapidly, isn't it? I mean, the demands on families increasing, time's getting shorter and shorter, the pace of everything's um, picking up dramatically, it's easier to commute, uh, to communicate without having to commute, traffic's impossible, particularly in a place like LA. Um, So there's demands for major changes to the way we work and the way we design our lifestyle, and I guess... Most of that seems to be attributed to millennials, most of that agitation. Um, do millennials think differently than we older farts, or are, are they just more independent and vocal? Well, I think both. I think, you know, you're dealing with, a, again, just to redefine what, what the generation is that we're talking about. 
We're talking about the generation that was born between 1980 and 2000. Right. So the youngest members are still in high school, and the oldest members are in the workplace. Right. And uh, so you've got 15 to 35 years old. Now, why all the talk about this generation? Why all the talk about these young people? Because it's the largest generation in history. Right. And so you've got 80 million people just in the U.S. alone, 1.2 billion worldwide. That's a huge, staggering number. And there's another piece of the puzzle that really sets this generation apart. It's the generation that grew up with mobile technology connected to the Internet. So it's it, as a generation, as a group of people, they are more connected than any other group of people. They are more connected to each other. And Certainly. they are the largest generation. So you put all those things together and you start to see just completely unpredictable results, which is why so many companies, organizations, and, and, and political uh, bodies, including religious bodies, are struggling to kind of, as they say, get their arms around this generation. And I have good news and bad news in that regard. The good news is there are a lot of insights uh, that you can gain in a very short period of time about members of this generation. The bad news is you're probably never going to get your arms around them because uh, even after studying, studying this generation intensely for the past 10 years, I can tell you it is, it is an enormous change uh, that's probably going to go on for, for the rest of our lifetimes, Generation X and Boomers. We're, we're, we're going to, you know, we'll live the rest of our lifetimes watching the millennial generation develop the world. Is that, that's reflective of what's, of, of that, of the independence, isn't it? I mean, when we were growing up, and there's a bit of difference in our ages, but, um, when we were growing up, we had half a dozen television channels. There was very little other way to communicate. We had telephones, of course, and whatever, but now, um, the environment encourages, um, all thousands of different views and thousands of of um, brand categories, if you want to call them that, to spring up. So it, it does encourage people to be much more independent, much more diverse, doesn't it? It does. It does. And you asked if they were different or they thought differently, um, and and I think yes, they they are different. They think differently, and of course. The diversity is a huge part of that. You know, we're talking about a generation that grew up. The advent of the mobile phone it was really in the early 90s in the United States, yep. along with um, the Internet. Those two things slammed together. And, and so from the get-go, members of this generation saw themselves as being in charge of communication. They saw themselves as being in charge of information, what information they were going to consume, what information they weren't going to consume. And as soon as they got interconnected, they kind of started developing their own language, which, of course, every generation has its own sure. language. You know, sure. Look at the baby boomers, look at the music of the era, look at the flower power, look at the, you know, there was the yeah. big conversation, is it rock or is it disco? Is it rock? Is it disco? You know, that was the argument. And mm -hmm. then, of course, Gen X, and we had electronic music, and, and you know, we had Depeche Mode and things like that. But, but rarely does a generation interconnect with itself and then begin to set the bar itself. And that's what we're seeing. Cross, you know, we're, it's not East Coast, West Coast, you know, fashion. It's not Australia, U.S., Japan, China. 
it's global, it's instantaneous, and it's moving largely. One of the aspects of this generation, one of the key aspects, is the members move often together in large groups. So a social media influencer who is very influential in the United States will have global influence immediately. And that one person will influence an entire group or a mega group, you know, millions or even hundreds of millions of people. That's the power of this interconnected generation. Can I be really enthusiastic and about the attitudes of this new generation? I mean, are they going to have a better in attitude to, or do they have a better attitude to the environment than we do, or do they have the sorry, the, the community in general, do they have a different attitude to war than we do? It seems to me that for intelligent beings, um, we have made one giant fuck-up of the environment, and if you have a look at all the tragedy of war across the planet, I mean, we don't add to it. I mean, it's all right to blame the other guys all the time, but, jeez, we're not exactly... Um, we don't exactly have clean hands on in, in, in any of this. Do they have a different attitude? I think they do. I think they do. And, and, and there's a lot of statistic, statistical data that supports that idea, uh, both in the U.S. and overseas. You know, we recently traveled and studied uh, this demographic in China. It is amazing the change that has occurred from the baby boomer through the Gen X. This generation is really leading a whole new way of thinking globally around the environment, around ecology, but not just around ecology. I, I, you know, we, we, I actually now separate this into a new banner, and we call it social value. And when we deal with corporations, we call it corporate social value. But overall, social value for these young people is a combination of the following things how you deal with the environment, how you deal with people, including workers, how you deal with communities, and how you deal with families. So everything is evaluated according to its social value. Remember, we're, we're talking about a generation that's largely interconnected. So if somebody says, hey, that company has bad social values, next thing you know, there's a massive Twitter conversation about what, what are the bad social values? Oh, well, they have slave labor, and they're using toxic plastics, and all of a sudden, one person's influence changes the whole conversation around a company that may have no idea that what's going on. So it's, it's transparency is another touchstone of this generation. Right. Are you transparent? Because they expect you to be, and if you're not, they're going to pry you open and, and see what's wrong, and then they're going to have a global conversation about it and make a choice as to whether they'll support you or not and of course if you have to do with ecology and you're doing ecological things you're a lot better off and you're a lot more likely to get that support than if you're not okay we've said we've seen this happen with a, a few uh, companies and um but nike comes to mind when nike um got into trouble with um, um child labor and we saw the effect that it had on on nike sales at that time um and I do agree that um, um, I've got a son um, who, who you know because he, he worked with um, Metal as um, an intern for Ken. But um, he would say that um, he has 
sort of high social values, if you like, responsibly cares about um, ethical manufacture of goods, he cares about the environment, he cares about all that. Okay, so let's say the millennials do care. Why don't they vote? I mean, ah, the ah, biggest vote, fuck yes, up in history voting. has got to be the American government. I mean, seriously. Voting. Yeah, why well, don't they vote? This is interesting. And this is, again, it's a global phenomenon, the lack of voting. That This generation as a whole, and I'm making yeah. broad sweeping generalizations, and, and that's always dangerous, but we, we see in surveys uh, between 60 and 80% of respondents say something to the effect of, I do not believe in the following institutions, big government, big religion, and big corporations. Now, not all of their behavior reflects that statement, but when you look at the uh, move away out of big, big religion, that is a massive, I mean, you know, religious attendance has dropped uh, down into the teens, yeah, in terms of percentiles, 13, yeah, 14%. I mean, Voting a- is the same. Voting is the same. They don't trust big government. They will vote when it comes to a national presidency, but they will largely not vote on any other issue or in any other state or local race. I, I think those two things are quite different. I mean, I, you know, you and I might have a different view on this, but I think the fairy tale that is religion has lasted 2,000 years too long and it it astounds me every time I think about it. But government, whether you like it or not, controls every single thing that we do, really. Um, But that's that's where, as a generation, their belief system differs. Because if you look at what happened with SOPA and PEPA, the laws that were introduced in the United States to curtail... Um, really curtail privacy on the internet and, and expand the government's power over everything we see and touch uh, in the digital world. When those two laws came up, uh, you know, this was a generation that was never supposed to protest. It was never going out in the streets. I mean, not only did it go out in the streets as a generation, and when you looked at the people in D.C. and you looked at the people in New York and you looked at the people on the streets, and hundreds of thousands of them, the vast majority were young, over 90%. Sure. But the Internet went dark. Huge portions of the Internet got turned off overnight. Wikipedia turned off. Uh, massive networks turned off. Massive amounts of the Internet just went dark. And basically what, what the, these young people were saying was, um, you know, you think you control the world, but we control your world. And if you touch our turf, you'll you'll feel the the line. We'll put the line in the sand. And so at that moment, I believe the tables turned. And we saw a generation that has largely been, you know, millennials is a pejorative word. We saw a generation that's been put on the uh, sort of underdog status, step up and assert their power. And I think it scared all of the powers that be, because ultimately this is a generation that visualizes an open source government that visualizes things like electronic voting, that visualizes politicians that don't uh, get sponsored, essentially, by corporations. And they're not really willing to play the game. They're just going to upgrade the game. And that's their but opinion. The, the, they're, they're, only, they're only going to upgrade the game, though, if they participate. I mean, isn't it? aren't they being very selective when they turn around and they say, well, we'll, we'll go out en masse and the government wants to change the rules with regard to the Internet, so we'll 
you know, will protest against that. But the government wants to take away or restrict voting rights in 27 um, states. We're not going to do anything about that because, you know, what the hell? We do, we believe in democracy and we believe everybody should have a vote, but are we going to fight for it? No. There's, you know, look, <laughs> okay. it, it, I don't you get it. absolutely pointed out, there, there are massive inconsistencies, okay? Yeah. But but you can see when something's important because it, it it ripples through the entire social media sphere and it becomes an issue. And you can see when something isn't important. And, and it is not consistent, and that's part of why uh, governments, religious organizations, uh, marketers, companies, corporations are all struggling to understand, well, why when we do this do we get this big response and we do this other thing, do we not get this big response? And a lot of it has to do with the personalization of technology. If, 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 if you are a part of this generation, your identity is tied into the Internet. So sure. your identity is not tied to voting rights. So if somebody says, look, I'm going to restrict your voting rights, I mean, we would have to do a survey to be sure, but the average person from Generation Y would probably say something to the effect of, it doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. It's all run by baby boomers. They're all steeped in corporate dollars, and it's a big scam. So why, would I, why do I care? Now, if you touch my Internet, you know, that's where, that's where I care. So you start to get a sense it's perspective-driven, and that perspective has been because of the way they grew up and because of where they see their power. Do, do millennials want to participate in um, in government? Not necessarily the sort of government we have now where everybody's between bloody 90 and death, but do they want to participate in government... Um, that represents more of their ideals? If they do, why don't more of them... I know you get the odd 18-year-old that becomes mayor of somewhere, but um, why don't they participate more and, 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 and try to um, um, be more involved in community governance? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's, I think it's, um, it's interesting. If you look at the voting numbers... They're abysmally low for yep. this age bracket, yep. except for ex- except for very, 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 very clear exceptions. The Obama campaign is the nineteen eighty eight campaign. Yep. Yeah. So largely, who was who staffed the campaign? People from Generation Y who voted for Obama. People from Generation Y. So you know when they saw something that appealed to their values and ideals. Uh, not only did they run the campaign, and they ran all of the digital, all of that was done by Generation sure. Y. Sure, uh, 100% of and that was a breakthrough. No one had done a digital online political campaign that, that did Brilliant. his campaign debt. Whether you love him or hate him or you don't care about him, um, you know, Obama as a man was was largely driven by a generation of people who saw an opportunity to flex their muscles. Now, they have not, as as a as of yet, we've not seen them flex their muscles again in the same way voting-wise. But here's where we do see them flexing their muscles. And this is very interesting because it, 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 it heralds a different future. When you, look, when you go to the Hill, as I do every now and then, um, largely for filming, for a movie, yep. all of the staff, everyone who's actually in, um, in, in the Senate and in the, the House of Representatives, all of their staffers, are under the age of 35. Most of them are under the age of 25. Yeah. So who's writing the speeches? Who's doing the research? Who's 
informing the decisions that the boomers are making on the floor. Who is actually crunching the numbers? It's all young people. And if you look at local and state governments, again, all of the staff, not you know 100%, but we're talking 90, 95% is young people. So I, I would venture, uh, you know, I would venture the bet that within the next 10 years, because remember, 30% of our workforce is Gen Y right now. Right. But within the next 10 to 15 years, that's going to shift to 60 to 70% of our workforce. Radical yes. change in a very short period of time. They're basically positioning themselves to kind of take over the political system. And that's uh, kind of something that nobody thinks about is, is well, interesting that they don't vote, but if you look at who's running the whole show, who's running the campaigns, who's running the internet, who's... who's de- Wow, it's all young people. It worries mm. me. That, that even worries me more because it seems to me that we're getting government in the US is getting, not only in the US, but um, in the UK and Australia, the same phenomenon's happened, is governments are becoming more and more dysfunctional. I think that there's a generational disconnect. I think that, mm. I think you see the same thing in the government as you see in the educational system. You have these antiquated. There's a, there's a system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you listen. Well, you have these. Yeah, yeah. You have these sort of antiquated um, systems that are built on a lot of assumptions that no longer apply. Yeah. And and you know a non non representative government that has a massive black box but bu- black box budget. Um, you know, and, and and here we have young millennials like Edward Snowden, who just thumbs their nose at the whole thing, and and literally says, "Well, if you're going to be secretive, and you're not going to be transparent, I'm just going to put the whole thing online for everyone." Yeah. And then, of course, the Oscar-winning movie is about this guy. Yeah. Uh, so, so you see, I think we see that that um, not only are they staffing the lower levels, but at the higher levels where you really see the 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 corruption uh we're starting to see some very very you may say naive you may say stupid or you may say heroic acts by members of this generation to sort of say okay you know we're going to go we're going to go ahead and cross the line and let you know where the ideals of this generation stand so i think we're in i think we're just tasting the, the the very beginning of some radical and sweeping changes in in that department. I would have thought they were also pretty close to coming out of education out of education much more recent than many of us, and they understand how appallingly um, unsuited for today's generation that our education system is. Yet if I go and see Sir Ken Robinson tomorrow, who I love. Robinson, I absolutely love him. It's full of old farts, and you don't see a whole bunch of millennials all clamouring for a, a, a total change in education. Yet they're probably the closest to it, aren't they? Yes, and again, you know, here here you go back to uh, the catch twenty two that we see a lot of members of this generation in. You, they are the highest educated generation, not just yep. in the US, but worldwide. Yep. Yep. Uh, yet they have the lowest ability to get jobs, meaning they entered the workforce at a time when the workforce was constricting, but there were so many of them, and they were so well qualified. Mm. So you've got you know people with PhDs and masters, 
mm-hmm. teaching kindergarten and yep. uh, teaching third grade. And and the higher level jobs are held by people with a lot more experience, but a lot of times a lot less education. So these institutions have kind of fostered a Peter principle, yeah. and and the younger people know it. And so you know a lot of people are either biding their time, or they're going surfing, or they're you know <laughs> you know kind of extending their adolescence. Uh, doing odd jobs until they can hook into something that where they know they're, they're going to make a difference. And that's, that's the flip side of all of this is, yes, there's a tremendous amount of potential in this generation, but in terms of their access to the physical workforce, it is extremely limited. Uh, and that's, that's overall, that's worldwide. Even in, even in China, this generation is finding it hard to get into jobs that are currently held by its its older siblings or its parents. It, you know, this is the first generation in history to compete with its parents for the same job at yeah. Burger King. Never mind <laughs> at Microsoft. You know. Yeah, I, I, I think of course the other the other issue and and one that will solve itself over the next probably five years is that um, the structure of of industry and and of the work environment's going to change totally because most of the businesses out there are legacy businesses that are not suitable for um, today's lifestyle or today's generation. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, what, we're, what you and I are really discussing right now, we're, we're, we're framing it inside of a generation, which is a group of people. But what we're really talking about is we're really talking about the future. Yeah. And when we, when we look at the future of business, you know, we can do the numbers, we can do the math, and Peter Diamandis was the first one to sort of make this public, but it is it has been absolutely uh, verified. Fifty percent of Fortune 500 companies will be gone by 2050. Yeah. So you know the uh, the the Kodaks of tomorrow may be the big brands that you're so used to today. Yeah. And that's. Oh, I'm sure that's, that's true. That's scary for a lot of people, and and. That's kind of where we need to be thinking in terms of well, what is the new economy because it's going to be driven by a whole bunch of different factors. You Absolutely, know? yep. So you're telling me that, having studied this for ten years, that we all should feel really good because this giant well of millennials um, is just this sleeping giant that's going to bring good to the world. Well, <laughs> I wish I could say those exact words. Here, the bottom line is... This. I'm a dreamer. What can I tell you? Yeah. Change is scary. And we're all, you know, we all gravitate toward consistency. But this is the generation that's going to change the world. Some of those changes are going to be changes that humanity has worked for for 150, 200 years, maybe even longer. Some of those changes are going to be things that are not positive. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it, it, at the end of the day, people in business go, well, what can we do about this generation? And I say, well, I invite you to change your wording. Why don't you say, what can we do with this generation? Right. Because chances are, if you're listening to this and you own a business or you're a parent or you're even a grandparent and you've got these young people in your life, uh, the traditional model is we teach young people a lot. Yep. And, and they grow up and they know what we know. We've got to enter a different model. These are sure. young people that grew up with 100% of the information of the world in the palm of their hand. Yep. We are going to have to take some, uh, a little bit of hum- humble pie and learn a little bit from them 
and be open to being their coaches, their mentors. Uh, but remember, you're dealing with people who have a very, very, very developed sense of their of the self. Yes. You know, oneself. So yes. it's a coaching mentality versus a being a dictator mentality. It's a it's a mentoring mentality. It's a a friendship mentality. And I think ultimately, the best that we can get out of this generation is going to be a result of us giving our best to this generation. Yeah, I, I, I look at my son, and uh, he's in this gener- in the millennial generation, and uh, I think he's. I'm reasonably well educated. He's better educated. He's more worldly. He has access to more information. He has more people skills certainly now than I did when I was his age. He's travelled more. He's much better versed in the world and, and its politics than we are. And I, I always think that I can learn a hell of a lot more off him than he can learn off me. And uh, that's probably a great thing. <laughs> yeah, I've, it is. It is. The, the, the potential is, is phenomenal. And, and your son is indicative and reflective of, of many other people his age as well. Josh, thanks very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really do appreciate it. I'd love to get up um, to Ojai and have a look at the at the farm um, one day, and uh, if, make sure you say hello next time you come down to Metal. Now, if you'd Will like, do. if you'd like to find out more about um, about Josh, how do they do that? Well, my my most uh, fruitful resource is probably my website, joshtickell.com. JoshTakel.com. Yeah, com. Yep. You can check out our movies online at BigPictureRanch.com. So BigPictureRanch.com. Thank you very much, sir. I look forward. I've always enjoyed your presentations. The last one at Metal was about this subject, actually. It was great. So I look forward to seeing you very shortly. Bob, thanks so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure today. It, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Good discussion. Thank you. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show i'm just sitting here in the intercontinental hotel overlooking victoria harbor in hong kong and it is simply spectacular view it's a great way to broadcast a radio show this is normally the segment of the show where we bring you emails from our listeners over the last few years we've had lots and lots and lots of emails about logos and uh, so I thought that I'd devote this segment to logos and uh, I'll do as much as I can in the time that we've got. When you look at a logo, your logo should be recognized by somebody in an instant. I was once told, um, I was out at um, Disney and I was once told that um, if you got 150 logos and stuck them all on the wall and turned around, faced the other way, 
and uh, then rapidly spun around. If you couldn't see your logo first, it wasn't good enough. And uh, the more I thought about that and the more logos I've seen in my life, the more I think that's true. Um, you know, targets the bullseye. Apple, everybody knows the Apple um, logo. Nike's got the swoosh. And uh, they instantly tell you who the company is. They identify the brand. They make it stand out. So we all know great logos, but they're really bloody difficult to create from concept to colour to roll out. There's a lot to be considered. And, uh, you know, these days we have less time and less space to tell our stories than we've ever had before. So we need to get as much across in that logo as possible. And the logo is the fastest uh, communication that we can create. So it's really important to get your logo right the first time round. So here are 10 essential questions I think you should ask when you're designing your logo. First question is, you know, what types of logos are there? Well, firstly, there's four different types. There's word marks, which are um, freestanding words or abbreviations that comprise a logo, such as um, eBay, IBM, CNN, Google, you know, logos like that. There's letter form logos, which um, comprise of a single letter. Think of Honda, Uber, Unilever, Beats, McDonald's. They're all just a single letter. Then there's um, pictorial logos, which are symbols of recognisable things. Starbucks, Twitter are two such examples, and abstract logos that don't represent anything otherwise recognisable, and probably the most famous of those is the swoosh with Nike. So they're the different types of logos. The second question to ask yourself is which type of logo would best suit your company? So, you know, not all these logo types work for everyone. So if you've got a short company name, maybe a word mark would, um, would work. Um, a letter form logo, you know, they're good because they, they tell the, they tell them the name very quickly. They're much better, easier to associate with than abstract logos. And, uh, if you opt for an abstract logo, make sure that it's straightforward and really represents what your brand is. The third question is, what are the key points about my business that I want to convey with my logo? So from the color to the shape, it should tell people what your company is all about. So when they look at it, they should get a feel for your brand personality and, and your distinctive point of view. They should immediately know that you're different to your um, competitors and that you're professional. Uh, you need a really good Amazon's logo, which is represented by the company name with a, an arrow um, below it go from the A to the Z, is a logo that um, embodies its, the brand really well. It says that um, the company is Amazon and it sells everything from A to Z. The fourth question you need to ask is, what are the best logo colours? Now, this is always um, um, debatable, but it's, um, it's incredibly important. So to best differentiate yourself, stay away from any colours that your competitors use. And, you know, different colours reflect different things. The colour red, like in Red Bull, is active, intense. It's alarming, scary. Yellow is happy, energetic and fresh. Um, and blue 
evokes confidence, calm, reliability. If you're a financial company and you're wanting people to give you money, um, blues are not a stable colour. If you go with um, purple, it doesn't say that same stability. The fifth question to ask yourself is what fonts should you consider? Like fonts, like colours, um, convey various emotions. Different fonts work better for different industries. Um, a legal firm, which should be, you know, honourable strength, justice, all that sort of stuff, um, probably be best represented in a bold, straightforward font with no flourish, whereas a candy shop might um, opt for a whimsical font that uh, communicates youth, sweetness and fun. The next big question is, should you design the logo yourself or should you have a graphic designer do it? Well, my opinion is that no matter how good an artist you think you are, you're much better off um, getting a graphic designer who's trained, who, who understands um, how the application of the logo will appear um, in different mediums. Um, you know, there's so many different mediums from um, from your website to a letterhead to um, um, on your app or on the sign in front of your window. However, um, so get a designer every time. And most of us, when designing logos, are on a tight budget, so how much should you spend on a logo? Well, professional logo firm will probably charge you somewhere between 4000 and 15000 for a logo. So most of us don't have 15000 but there are some more affordable options. You know, freelance designers usually charge... 35 to 100 bucks an hour, maybe 150 bucks an hour, but get a good one. Um, there are website professional logo design providers like LogoWorks. However, I don't like any of those and I wouldn't use them. So once you have a good logo, where should you display it? The answer is everywhere, online and offline. Just put it all over the place, everywhere possible. So what are the mistakes that you've got to avoid? Well, the first mistake is um, setting on, settling on a logo before considering your competitors' logos. If your logo ends up similar to theirs, even in the slightest, people can't tell you apart, you lose business, it stops you differentiating yourself. <coughs> and uh, when designing your logo, should you worry about what it's going to look like in 10 years' time? Well, no, not really, as long as it works for now, because most logos get tweaked on a regular basis anyway, so you just modernise it, modernise it, modernise it to keep it up with the times. So logos, not as easy as it might seem, but um, if you get it right, it's a big win. If you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Five o'clock LA time every Tuesday. Um, Go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe to my uh, monthly newsletter. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook and become a direct contact of mine on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, it's much easier to do the impossible than the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard from Hong Kong. And uh, I hope you have a fantastic week, and I'll see you again next week from my hometown of Los Angeles. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.